stay patient and boy has he done it founded in 1983 actually this was maybe an inpatient move 1996 IPOing maybe a little early raising you know north of 100 million bucks on day one and going oh my gosh we now have investors what do we do here they're doing about 32 million bucks run right then fast forward a couple years into 2000 hired an external CEO to try and drive more growth didn't work out so well so eventually uh, took back the helm in 2010 made a big acquisition to develop out uh, a system that more fully integrated their customer engagement and process automation platform they're today doing north of 847 million bucks in run rate targeting about 900 million again focusing and just staying home on what they know well which is again these enterprise accounts customer engagement process automation this is the top entrepreneurs podcast where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Alan Treffler. He's a visionary leader and a technology change agent and an innovative philanthropist, a chess master and a trusted advisor to business and executives around the world. He founded Pegasystems to change the way the world builds software. Today, the company employs nearly 4,500 people around the world and has a market cap of almost $5 billion. Alan, are you ready to take us to the top? Well, I am. Very good. So I, the reason I, I told you before and I was excited to get you on because you are the opposite of like a WhatsApp or even the Atlassian. They had, you know, a 14-year run down there out of Sydney. But you really, this was the long haul for Pegasystems. Tell us the long, to, so you launched in what year? In 1963 or, or, or what was it? 83. 83. 83. Not, 83. Quite, not quite 63, but I could feel that way. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so 1983. And where were you at that point in your life? Well, I had uh, been working as a systems integrator, putting together, well, very sophisticated systems for some dead banks like uh, Chemical Bank and some still living ones like Citibank. And uh, I was pretty amazed at how bad the software development process was and had the idea of ways to really revolutionize it. Uh, the company I was working for was acquired, not a really fun experience, and I struck out on my own. Yep, that's great. Okay, so 1983, you jump in. Now, were you all in, or did you save up a cushion from kind of the corporate salary where you had a little fail-safe? Uh, I, I was beyond all in. I had to borrow money from family, and uh, one of the first things I did was take out a $500,000 term life in policy on myself because um, if this didn't work out, I was going to have to pay this back. Now, I wasn't going to kill myself. Uh, I, I calculated in an early spreadsheet program that if I worked like a dog and spent no money and lived in a hovel, I could pay it back in about eight years. Yep. And uh, that was my that was my plan B. <laughs> so, guys, uh, those of you listening, I want to contrast this to today where last reported revenue, you know, 800, 900 million ish. I want to ask him when he thinks they're going to pass a billion. But exciting space built over a long time. Let's go back to that original story. So you take out the initial things. What was the initial product, Alan, that you built? Well, it was interesting. It in many ways is reflective of what we do today. Though after four complete generational rewrites, obviously life has moved on quite a bit. The initial system was what one would have called a workflow system. It uh, enabled you to organize, in that era, just for large companies, 
how you wanted to get your business processes to work. And it, it let you define the steps, the systems you had to deal with, the human interactions. And I never liked the word workflow, though it stuck around for a lot of years. I always thought it should be work do, because we've always sought to incorporate AI principles and incorporate automation uh, into this from the inception. But that was the original idea. And uh, the way it evolved is we really moved into the front office, being able to do end-to-end work all the way from a customer's customer right through execution. Mm-hmm. And then fast, so fast forward, how many decades is that? One, two, three, four decades. What, <laughs> what, what, how would you describe the product today? Well, you know, the way I describe the company is we became an overnight success yeah. after 24 years. Uh, so it, it took 24 years to hit $100 million in revenue. And then obviously the business has really been clipping along uh, since then. Today, we're a company that uh, offers technology that does not just workflow, but you know, which has now been renamed digital process automation, but is also able to do full end-to-end CRM for many of the world's most demanding firms, uh, being able to bring process and rules and intelligence from the point a, a customer or one of our client staff touches something related to a customer all the way through execution. And it's, Quite and, a bit different. and take so two thousand. You said twenty four years after nineteen eighty three. So what, that would have been two thousand and seven. You hit a hundred million bucks in NAR. Is that right? Uh, it was. It was uh, two thousand and five. I think was the seminal year. That's when. You know what happened was the business grew for a while. Uh, frankly, I was not a great manager. I started the business and and uh, you know I hadn't had enough experience. I uh, for five years brought in a president. And uh, we actually learned a lot. I was able to really step back, but uh, they weren't able to get it up over 100 million. We were stuck there for several years. When I came back, I learned enough and we made enough changes to the product and our go to market that uh, we were able to grow at a 20% plus pace. Yeah. And th- by the way, this wasn't like you were just doing this and nobody was watching. You were in the public markets already at this point, right? I think you IPO'd in 96. Why IPO in 96? I think it was one of those situations where we IPO too soon. You know, part of the challenge that we had is uh, we were capital constrained. Uh, it was a time when lots of companies, including companies we competed with, were going public. We wandered down to Wall Street, and lo and behold, uh, you know, fell to the uh, the rapture song, as it were. The the, uh, the bank's rapture song, right? So January of '96, I went down to Wall Street uh, to do a little research, talking to some of the you know. Suspects you would expect, and lo and behold, we were public in third quarter of that year. And what was run rate at that point? um, We had a massive run rate the day we went public of thirty-two million. (laughs) It's just so funny because because you're one of the rare interviews I can do where we can actually look at historical cohorts. And you look at today. I mean, these companies, Eventbrite, just went public. I mean, you basically have to be north of ninety or hundred million bucks in in terms of run rate, and you've got to have your kind of your E forty and check and all this other stuff. But thirty-two million bucks, huh? Uh, I know it well. And (laughs) the trouble with that is obviously. introducing uh, too much public market money into a firm that's accustomed to bootstrapping yeah. entirely and accustomed to, to a different go-to-market model, uh, let us and gave us the opportunity to frankly waste a lot of it. Something- <laughs> How much did you raise on day one? Uh, we, we raised over $100 million. And, and uh, before that, you hadn't used $1 of investor capital. No. Well, it was all, it was all entirely self-funded. Yeah, it was all your life insurance policy. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. And my mother's retirement and other things at that time. Yeah. yeah, very good. Okay, so you bring in the other CEO, you stay flat. When did you kind of take back the helm? I was January 2005. Okay, oh, it was 2005. Great. And then basically since then, you said you've been growing about 20% year over year? Mm-hmm. And yeah, last was- and last reported run rate was what? I think my notes, my research, it was like 840, something like that? Uh, well, 847 was last year. Uh, and the, the target for this year is about 900. That's great. So you're you're getting... So what do you call it when you pass up? You said your 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 centennial, I guess, was two thousand and five when you passed a hundred billion. What do you call it when you pass a billion? I, I don't think we. I, I think we we just want to call it an uh, intermediate step. <laughs> the market the market we're in has enormous potential, and we think we have a view of it that's uh, both unique and operates well. So my my initial question when my my husband came to research uh, for the for the interview was when you look at the your product lineup that what you guys do you know Salesforce I'm like okay yeah they're a CRM right you you seem to touch so many markets that are and don't be obviously not a, not an offensive statement here but not sexy markets right or, or harder to get into markets um, how how do you how do you remain competitive uh, you're like your CRM product uh, with a company that only focuses on one of the aspects of what you do. Well, one thing that is an enormous advantage for us is we have a coherent architecture. So when we, for example, made a build versus buy decision in 2010 to bring in what I still think are absolutely top of market predictive and adaptive analytics, we actually bought a company for 160 million bucks. And then we spent two years re-architecting what they did into this really seamless architecture that brings together customer engagement and process automation in a way that is is, is quite unique. So uh, the mode that we have is by being able to do real things. And you're right, some of those real things aren't as sexy, but I guarantee you all the sexy stuff sooner or later has to get real. And that's where these CRM systems all fall apart. See, years ago, I think Salesforce does the same stuff now. Yeah. Um- Moving into kind of public market world, you know, you know, Bezos is famous for kind of managing at a kind of negative 14 percent EBITDA margin or something like that. However, when you look at SaaS valuations and you look at kind of the EV and these kind of multiples, you know, they really decline if you don't, you know, when you add obviously your, your growth year over year, you're at 20 percent plus your free cash flow margin. If, it, if those two together don't equal some around 40 percent. So why can a guy like Jeff get away with it? But you can't. Well, I think that their incredible growth rate uh, has powered them, and they were uh, terrific at executing from the very beginning. I'm not trying to get away with that. We think that high-quality companies should grow at a, at a nice pace, and they should throw out positive cash flow, and they should make a little money. Um, you know, So different companies have different goals, and our goal is to be a really responsible firm, both to our customers, which is very, very deep in the culture, and uh, to our shareholders. If you guys are like me, it was quite a shock to me when I was building my first company, Heyo, and we reached like 10, 11, 12 people. And all of a sudden I'm going, wait, why am I getting notices from all these states? And that's because I had to file payroll and stuff in these states as we started hiring people from remote locations. It was the biggest pain in the, in the butt. I hated the paperwork. I hated the payroll. And so now today when I'm launching new companies, hiring new remote employees, I use a company called Gusto. It's very simple. Payroll benefits and HR for modern 
small businesses. What I like most, and I've timed this, it takes about seven minutes on average for my folks to run payroll. It's got fast, easy to run payroll, including W-2s and 1099s. I love that they have health benefits and 401ks all built in for nearly any budget. So you kind of just pick what you want. And they've got expert HR support just to call away. So you don't have to hire you know, HR people in-house. But most importantly, it frees up my time. So I can go back to my monday.com Kanban board, you know, plan the next sprint, you know, put the next spec out on the line and talk to three more customers. So if you want more effective payroll, you know, a lot of people change payroll providers at the end of the year. Now is really the best time to switch. So listeners of the podcast, you can go to nathanlacka.com forward slash gusto to try a demo and test it out. Again, that's nathanlacka.com forward slash gusto, and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. All right, I'll see you there. Product lineup, where do you kind of see this space going over the next six to 12? I know it's actually a short-term horizon, but next six to 12 months. Well, what we see is the continued emergence of organizations wanting to digitally transform. I mean, everybody these days is talking about digital transformation. And to tell you the truth, a lot of that is heavy lifting at scale. And that's why we are so excited about where we are, because our, our, our heritage, our being able to do this for sophisticated and complicated organizations is now something we can bring with the cloud to varied and smaller and different companies. Let them get started fast, but letting them know they're not going to run out of runway. Yep. One of the one of the analogies you 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 used back when you were you know playing chess was you know you learn you lose a lot of games you learn from your own mistakes but you said you really ramp, ramped up your learning rate when you started kind of a system for learning from other people's mistakes uh, it, right in in today's market kind of public markets um, you know you've seen a, a lot of companies do a lot of things and some companies do one thing really well so so what do you what's the what is the kind of the one sentence or the one kind of filter you use to look through to decide what you're not going to be doing because again you're right you have an infrastructure you could do anything well part of being successful is not doing everything and we look to see if what we're doing is true to the idea of our model-based architecture we have an architecture that you could think of as a CAD cam for software itself it's it's software that literally literally writes software uh, by looking at the types of things people want to accomplish those types of things follow and fall into certain categories and so we need to be rigorous about making sure we solve problems like a customer service desktop, problems such as oh, driving a, a plan of care for a diabetic or, or somebody who has a chronic condition. Those sorts of workflow and engagement use cases are to our mind absolutely critical. And we want to make sure we're aligning what we do with what our software does well and what our customers have been successful with. Mm. So what was the last idea you either you brought to the executive team or the executive team brought to you where initially it sounded like a great idea, but after a quick debate, you said, no, we can't do this. Well, I, I think there's been a number of ideas around IOT that uh, are both very interesting ideas, but I think there's a question about timing uh, as much as there is a question about capability. A lot of folks running in that area. Now, ironically and interestingly, we do, we have, software that does IoT, for example, for GM, GM OnStar. Uh, if a GM car hits a tree, it calls a Pegasystem. But whether that's a business whose time is Oh, that's cool, by the way. That process flow is built on top of Pega? Yep, absolutely. Uh, oh, wow. Now, you see, it's interesting. We talk about doing what you do well. Uh, we're not the software on the car. Yeah. Right? A lot of software on the car. That's not us. That wouldn't be a good use case for what Pega does. However, we are entirely the software 
that figures out, do you call 911? What do you do? Do you call the person back? All of that type of process control and work management, perfect for what we do. And hooked into a real-time transaction system, also something we do terrifically well. But doing stuff, for example, IoT distributed on the edge across the shop floor, it's a good idea. It's going to happen. A lot of companies are in it. Don't see any of them making any money. I don't see that market coming together soon. So being able to be selective about ideas like that, I think is very important and a little hard because you know they are sexy. Yep. Yep. Now, as you drive to this 20% kind of growth target year over year, is most of this coming from expansion revenue across the customer base you already have, or is it really coming from brand new customers getting introduced to the platform? So, so part of a big change we implemented three or four years ago was we decided to open the aperture on our clients. We historically only dealt in certain industries to the Fortune, really the Fortune 300. Now, today, we've, uh, through the use of the cloud, but also through simplification of our software itself, We've now made it much easier for the software to be used. And we have areas like government, for instance, where we have massive use cases as they're trying to modernize themselves because most government systems around the world are actually pretty ugly. Uh, or whole new markets that we're going into uh, with recent customers like Google. Yep. Interesting. And then a last question here related to kind of cash and cash management tied back to product ideas. Is there anything that you see over the next kind of 12 to 24 months where you would totally be willing to to hit your bottom, you know, your call it your whatever your bottom line margin is to, to make an investment in the future and then, you know, obviously have to go up on your next earnings call and defend it? Well, I think that the so a couple of things. One, I think we've gotten a reputation over the years as being a prudent company. So if we did have to go and really hit something hard, I'd like to believe that we get some uh, credit. And you, some- you have some you have some buffer here for your you know decades of experience, right? Decades of experience and 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 hopefully a good rational persona. Yeah. Um, the thing that we are investing in is is growth. We think that our sales force needs to be meaningfully larger. We think we need to do a better job at how we market. We're not a company that historically uh, was very visible and. We have been, and I expect we'll continue uh, to invest in that, even though the payback on those things typically takes a little while to come. Yeah. How long typically? I mean, are you talking about when you, you, know, you, you hire 100 new salespeople, it takes them seven months to actually get ramped up to quota, that kind of thing? Uh, well, in our business, given, given we're selling mission-critical capabilities in a lot of cases, uh, it can take double that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, very interesting. Okay. Any, uh, what about, um, build versus buy decisions, right? So you just mentioned a big acquisition you did a couple of years ago, any big acquisition, you know, North of a hundred million dollar acquisitions you see coming up for you in the next, you know, one to two years. And if so, what kind of spaces might those be in? Well, there's, there's lots of capabilities around things like natural language processing that, for example, we, uh, we both bought and built, uh, in conjunction. Uh, we do look all the time at technologies, particularly, I'm not as much of a fan of buying customer bases because usually when you buy a customer base, you, you just give yourself a lot of confusion in terms of uh, you know which software you're going to offer there. But our product now is really very robust and complete. I, I don't see the need for any major acquisition. Uh, we look at stuff and we'll do something if it makes sense. But right now, we really need to get it out there and be selling it. Yeah. Um, I, I lied here. Last question. Voice tech. You know, there's a lot of these physical devices coming into the home, the living room. There's a lot of kind of voice and there's a lot of open source things for voice because people don't want to like build a skill on top of Alexa or things like that. Do you have a stake in the voice game yet? And if so, how do you see that maturing over the next, you know, two, three years? 
So the way I look at things like voice and, and something that we've done, you can see it on our website, is to be able to link in to Alexa and to Google Home, right, or to Siri. So we see our job as bringing intelligence to voice, much as we have, uh, we run in some large commercial contact centers behind the voice response unit, uh, some of which are really quite capable of offering personalized messages. We, we do something called call deflection. If you you're call in, and we can figure out why you're calling, even by just knowing the number you're calling from, we can tell you, yeah, we received your payment. Or, yes, you know, that charge, it, it was removed from your, from your uh, statement. Being able to do things like that can actually improve service. Uh, we do have live chatbot interaction available, though, with, for example, Alexa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, if your system can do the call kind of deflection there, it's obviously way cheaper than a human having to answer and do it themselves, right? And, fr- and friendlier than having somebody wait in a queue. Yeah, way friendlier. Nothing more frustrating. All right, Alan, let's wrap up with the famous five here. Number one, last business book you read. So the, the last book I read that I think uh, qualifies as really influencing my business is one I just finished recently called Sapiens, which uh, as in Homo sapiens. Sapiens is actually about how culture evolved in the world. And I actually found a lot of it to be relevant to business and very interesting. Yep. Number two, is there a CEO, preferably one that's not in the news a lot, that you're following or studying? Well, you know, I heard Jamie Dimon recently, and he's been in the news some, but I think he's done a terrific job over a lot of very difficult times uh, going way back in his career. Is he running in 2020? <laughs> I, I actually would hope so. But <laughs> probably not. All right. Number, uh, number three, besides any of your own, Alan, what's your favorite online tool for building your business? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think that a, it's going to sound retrograde, but I think a beautifully written email is the best way. One, one that really hits topics quickly and, and, and shows a lot of attention is what I would say is the best electronic tool for introductions. Very rarely done, by the way. Is there someone or somewhere we can go where you know these people do that every day when they send out emails? Um, like, is there one you follow in particular? No, there's not a place that I okay. go for that. These are all, if you're talking about template type places, no, I think this has to come from the heart. I'm sorry, I'm talking about, are you meaning like when the New York Times sends a, a mass email out about a story, the way they might format it? Or are you talking about personal one-on-one introductions, how the introductions teed up via email? Uh, the latter. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. I misunderstood you. Very good. Number th- uh, four, how many hours of sleep are you getting every night? Uh, I'd like to get more, but I probably get about six and a half. Yeah, not horrible. And what's your situation? Married, single, kiddos? Uh, I'm, I've celebrated my 26th wedding anniversary. Wow. With a woman who I met on a business trip. <laughs> that's 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 great. And uh, any kiddos? Uh, no, no, just four dogs. No, f- holy mackerel! That well, they each kind of half points. So that's two children. All right, <laughs> <laughs> no kiddos. And Alan, how old are you? Uh, I'm sixty-two. Sixty-two. Last question. Take us back forty-two years. What do you wish your twenty-year-old self knew? Ah, uh, there'd be a lot, but I think the uh, the the things that. I knew then, but have learned since, is how much work it is and how much persistence it takes to really be able to see something through. It's easy to become impatient, and I would have counseled myself not to be. 
Guys, stay patient, and boy, has he done it. Founded in 1983. Actually, this was maybe an inpatient move. 1996 IPOing, maybe a little early, raising you know north of 100 million bucks on day one, and going, oh my gosh, we now have investors. What do we do here? They're doing about 32 million bucks run right then. Fast forward a couple of years into 2000, hired an external CEO to try and drive more growth. Didn't work out so well. So eventually uh, took back the helm in 2010, made a big acquisition to develop out uh, a system that more fully integrated their customer engagement and process automation platform. They're today doing north of 847 million bucks in run rate targeting about 900 million again focusing and just staying home on what they know well which is again these enterprise accounts customer engagement process automation alan thank you so much for taking us to the top thank you nathan